Welcome to The Change Lab, a podcast for people who are all about personal development, leaning into their potential and becoming their best self. Just, you know, starting next Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Hines, and oh, sh- it's Monday. Fellow lab mates and change mavens. I don't know what, what are we calling ourselves? Lab mates, change mavens? You guys can chime in. <laughs> you tell me. I don't know. We're both. How's everybody doing today? So I'm pretty delighted because I got a wonderful question from one of you. And uh, this week, I'm going to take a little detour, a slight detour from what was on the agenda. We're going to get pretty damn nerdy. I do think you guys need a little bit of a fair warning because in this episode, we're going to be talking about theoretical models of change. So before your eyes glaze over and you want to skip to the next episode, hang in there with me, guys, because understanding the different conceptual models of change is actually extremely important. Why? Because growth and change is, as I've been talking about, right? It's your work as a human being from cradle to grave. And whether you're aware of it or not, you already have internalized some sort of model of how change works. And this internalized framework that, as I said, you already have a framework. There's some framework that exists in you that you have, that you hold. And that internalized framework is shaping your thinking and your behavior right now. It's totally shaping how you go about your change, right? It determines whether you defend your stuckness or advocate for your growth. It determines whether you approach your unhealthy habits with curiosity or judgment. It determines whether you feel like a supportive partner or an adversary in your personal transformation journey. It determines whether you attribute your resistance to change to inadequate genes, inadequate parents, or inadequate beliefs, right? Or whether a relapse to old behavior is a sign of failure or a normal and inevitable part of the growth cycle. What you think about change, your mental framework of change, determines how you think about all of these things. The limitations of your unconscious mental model of change will manifest in the limitations you place upon your capacity to change. And by the way, how much you think someone else is capable of change as well, right? So anyway, I will set my bullhorn down and let's get into the question that Madison submitted. All right, she says, Hello, Dr. Hines. I've been in deep thought listening to your first three episodes of the podcast. Thank you for creating this. I'm already gaining valuable insight. And oh my gosh, I just want to say thank you, Madison. Thank you so much. It is a big relief to know that I'm not just talking into the great void. You guys, this is a whole new skill set. I will get into this on another episode. (laughs) I mean, talking into a microphone by myself is a whole new skill set. So Seriously, thank you. I really appreciate that. I have been uh, having a lot of fun with this podcast, but it has also been a wee bit more challenging than I wanted to believe it would be. So thank you for the positive feedback. All right, back to the question. So she continues, this might be a silly question, but I was wondering if the resolution model of change is the same thing as the trans-theoretical model of change. If not, could you speak about the differences on the show? Okay, first of all, lady, This is not a silly question at all. 
right? I mean, there are no silly questions, right? I mean, unless you're a fifth grader sneaking something shocking into the sex ed question box. But (laughs) no, this is an extremely thoughtful and I might add a rather nuanced question. We're talking trans theoretical model of change. It's a mouthful, right? So yeah, it's not a silly question at all. It's actually a psych nerdy question (laughs) and I love it. And I love that you took the time to ask for clarity. So thank you. So my short answer to your question is no, they're not the same. The resolution model is a shorthand that I use and it's it's just what I call it because I think that everyone has set a New Year's resolution at some point. So you kind of understand this framework. But anyhow, it's it's the shorthand that I use to describe any model of change that you know solely focuses on overtly taking direct action. So, you know, quitting drinking, sticking to your budget daily exercise. And it's focused on either you're taking that action or you're not. And it completely ignores the cognitive and emotional transformations people go through before and after deciding to alter their behavior, right? So it sees change as as action alone. So in other words, change is only quote real when you can see it in action. The implications of this action-oriented kind of just do it model is if you're failing to take direct action, you're failing to change, right? That's the underlying premise. And, you know, as I've discussed in previous episodes, like no wonder everyone is so damn demoralized. (laughs) It's really hard. Okay, so I'm going to back up. So no, they're not the same. That's my short answer. But let me back up here and I'm going to go deeply into the trans theoretical model of change because most of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about and you shouldn't because we don't talk about this kind of stuff. So let me explain to you what it is and then we'll get... Back to your question. Okay, so what is the trans theoretical model of change? And let me give you a little bit of context. This model of change is called TTM, trans theoretical model. Sometimes it's also called stages of change model. It was developed by James Prochaska and Carlo Di Clementi in the late 70s and early 80s. And this model was a radical departure from prevailing models of behavioral change at the time. By the way, the prevailing models of behavioral change at the time are still the prevailing models today. (laughs) That's not much has changed since the 70s, right? The trans theoretical model or stages of change model was a departure from this kind of prevailing view in the late 70s and early 80s and was pretty big breakthrough in the science of change. Anyhow, since then, their theory has really transformed what we now consider to be best practices for addiction treatment, smoking cessation programs, and clinical behavior change programs. It has kind of changed the game. And if you are a practitioner, you probably have heard of this model and probably use it to guide your thinking with clients or patients. Prochaska and DiClemente really introduced the idea that change isn't a binary on or off switch, but happens in distinct and progressive stages in a change cycle. And these stages, there are five of them, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. They you know, recognize that individuals are at different readiness levels for change. And not everyone is prepared to just jump straight into action. I highly recommend Prochaska's most recent book. It's called Change to Thrive. If you're interested in learning more about this, definitely read it. I'll put the link to the book in the show notes. It's a really accessible and interesting read, like truly fascinating. So grab it. If you're if you're interested in this, definitely read it. He explains it with much more depth and clarity than I certainly am here. 
Let me give you a quick summary of the five stages of change in the trans theoretical change model. So we're all on the same page here. And I promise, I really do promise this sounds way more complicated, abstract and intense than it really is. Okay, so hang in there. While you're listening to the description of each stage, you know, try to pinpoint where you might be in the change cycle. So where do you fit into this model of change? Stage one in Prochaska and DiClemente's model is called pre-contemplation. This is the stage of change where you're just not ready to change. You know, not at all. You're not ready. A person at this stage might theoretically want to change, but they don't have any real intention of changing. Okay. Remember, right? Wanting to change and intending to change are not the same thing. We can want to change something, but may not be actually intending to do anything about it. That's pre-contemplation. So remember, like people at the stage, theoretically, they want to change, but they're stuck because they don't know how to move forward or they're really demoralized or they're still defensive about their bad habits, right? They're still kind of defending their behavior and themselves and they don't really you know, they're kind of avoiding dealing with it. So to help someone move forward who's in this pre-contemplation stage, focus on raising and expanding awareness, right? Don't try to help them take action. They're just not ready. This is not where they're at. The next step forward for a person at this stage is to start consciously thinking about what they're doing so they can move to the next stage and start actually contemplating the possibility of making a change. So that brings us to stage two. So stage two of this model, the trans-theoretical model of change is contemplation. So you've got pre-contemplation and then we move into contemplation. This is getting ready to change. At this stage, a person is aware of the problem and is starting to think about resolving it, but they haven't committed to action yet. So they've moved beyond the kind of denial, avoidance and all that. And they're like, oh yeah, I really do want to resolve this thing. They can see it more clearly but they're just still not ready to commit to action. You know, they weigh the pros and the cons of making the change, but the pros may not yet outweigh the cons in like the way that they're thinking about it. So this is often a stage of ambivalence, dread, and delay. <laughs> Does this resonate with people, right? You're, you're thinking about change, but you're in this, this stage of ambivalence, dread, and delay. It's very relatable, right? Most people in the change cycle are either in pre-contemplation or contemplation. This is where the bulk of people actually are, right? And you may recognize yourself in one of these stages. And in light of what we've talked about over the last few episodes, this is really where a person feels the highest internal friction, that one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake feeling where an individual might feel torn between the familiarity of the status quo and the desire to change. Like there's that inner tension, inner friction. So moving someone through this phase, stage two of contemplation is all about helping them resolve their ambivalence and overcoming chronic contemplation. And that I think is one of the pitfalls of this stage is this sort of chronically contemplating change, but not actually being ready to commit to action. Okay, so stage three is preparation. And this is where you're really ready to change. This is the stage where someone has resolved their ambivalence enough to start preparing, not taking action, guys, preparing to take action. And they're preparing to take action often within about a month. So they're not yet taking action to change, but they're kind of, you know, laying the groundwork to do that in the next month. They may start taking small concrete steps towards change like gathering resources or planning specific strategies. At this preparation stage, 
you're really engaging in realistic planning. And this is essential, right? And by realistic, what I mean is you are laying the foundation, you are getting all your ducks in a row to take action for six months, right? That action phase, which we're going to get to, is you've internalized that it's going to take about six months of consistent effort and action to implement that change and you're planning for it. So, you know, this stage is all about gearing up for change and you can support someone at this stage by helping them design a robust and thorough six-month plan of action. That's what's happening here. Okay, stage four of the change cycle is the action stage. So that's implementing change. You're actually taking direct action. This is the stage where a person starts to engage in the change behaviors they've been thinking about or contemplating for sometimes months, for sometimes years, for sometimes decades, okay? They take observable and concrete steps toward making progress on their goal at this stage. And it's important to note that this stage, this sort of action stage, is certainly the highest at risk for relapse, right? Those change behaviors haven't really been fully internalized and integrated yet. So for someone at this action stage, it's crucial that they have the support tools and resources to help them manage the added demands on them, you know, because they have to put extra effort in engaging in this new behavior and help them keep the momentum going. So that kind of structure, support, tools, resources, critical for this action stage. The fifth stage is maintenance. The focus at this point in the process, this maintenance stage, is on sustaining the new behavior over time, which According to the research, and this is Prochaska and DiClemente's research, which by the way, is very robust and has been, I mean, it's probably one of the most well-researched change models. So we've got a lot of data on this, but essentially what they say is maintenance is really from six months. So you've gone through concerted action. You've, you've taken action to implement the new change for six months. And then from six months to five years is this maintenance stage. Some people, and I would probably be in this camp, there's a termination stage after five years, if you have no urge to return to the old behavior and are not at risk of relapse, then I think you've entered into the termination, like you fully completed the change cycle. Some people don't agree with this. If you are someone who recovered as an addict, you may have a mindset that's like, nope, I am in recovery and I'm recovering addict. I'm not recovered. And that thinks about this slightly different. So maintenance is an ongoing, indefinite phase. And that totally works as well. One's not better than the other. But what I would say the research shows is that the relapse curve levels out around nine months. So that's three months into the maintenance stage. Your risk of relapse is greatly diminished, right? That, that's sort of a tipping point. It's nine months. So this 28-day habit thing, I don't, what is that? I don't know. Is it 21 days, 28 days? <laughs> I think it was, it was really made up. Nine months, that's what we're talking about. Nine months of consistent taking action and your relapse rate diminishes significantly. At this stage, you really want to help a person create a strong scaffolding of social support, coping strategies, and reminders of the benefits of maintaining the new behavior to avoid relapse. This is crucial for this maintenance stage. And as I said, some people add on this model termination. So a sixth stage, not everybody does. Termination, which is fully integrated change. This would be the stage where a new behavior is fully ingrained and there's really no temptation to return to the old behavior at all. So that's the full stages of change. 
But of course, because human beings are not automatons, right? People don't necessarily march in a linear progression from one stage to the next, right? Most people will move back and forth, especially between contemplation, preparation, and action. There will be a lot of, you know, contemplation to preparation, back to contemplation, then to action, and then back to preparation. Like, this is what happens. That's very typical before successfully maintaining a change. It's just sort of part of the process. And after action or maintenance, there's also a potential relapse stage. And that's sort of like, you know, a stage that it's like shoots and ladders, right? It like takes you back down to an earlier stage where you revert to an old behavior and then you recycle through contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance again. But hopefully, and in this model, the assumption is the relapse isn't a catastrophe. It is a learning experience and that you're going to recycle through the earlier stages, but this time with the knowledge gained from what did and didn't work the last time. So relapse is really included in this framework as a normal part of the change process. And by the way, that inclusion, that relapse wasn't like total failure, but just a normal part of, you know, the process and cycle of change was totally groundbreaking when this developed. There are many reasons why I love this model and use it as a foundation for my own work. But One aspect of it that is just enormously helpful is the focus on assessing one's readiness to change, right? So action in terms of like implementing action, just do it, is futile, right? It's totally futile when we're just not ready, right? But it's important. You're just not ready yet. You will be, but not yet. And if you take action too quickly and you like jump right in, you all know how that works, right? It fails and then you get more demoralized. So it like sets you back. So the emphasis here is really on meeting a client, where are you at? And let's actually address the needs of the stage that you're in. And I love that, right? It really gives some structure to help you meet yourself or your client where they really are in this change cycle. Actually, I think James Prochaska has, he has a motto and it's like, wherever you're at, we can work with that, which is pretty cute. All right. So now that you all are experts on the trans theoretical model of change, let's get back to Madison's original question. Is the resolution model of change the same thing as the trans theoretical model of change? So now that you all are very smart on all things model of change, I think you would agree with me that no, the stages of change model represents an entirely different school of psychological science than the just do it action model of change. And we should include what I call the resolution model in that category. So let me break down the differences between the two and make this really as clear as I can. First, we have action-centric approaches. And the resolution model falls in this camp because successful change is measured by action and action alone. All the behavioral modification tools in this approach are geared toward manipulating your behavior, not upgrading your thinking. So let me give you some examples of these methods. And no doubt you are very familiar with them. Positive or negative reinforcement, like a habit tracker to reward you, like a school star chart, or a program that will punish you for blowing off a commitment by sending money in your name to an organization you hate. These are positive and negative reinforcement methods that are all about manipulating behavior, right? Social pressure. So accountability groups or a group pact or commitment, that is a tool to shape your behavior. 
changing your environment and making things easier to do or not do. So increasing or decreasing friction to take action. So, you know, put your gym clothes out the night before or remove the ice cream from your freezer. Like don't keep it in the house, right? That increases friction to eat ice cream. Putting your clothes out decreases friction to go exercise. These are behavior modification strategies solely focused on altering behavior. And of course, there are many more, right? There are lots of varieties of this kind of thing, but those are some examples to understand what I'm talking about. And this is really crucial. Don't get me wrong, right? These are not bad. I'm not saying that these don't work because they do, right? We use them because they are effective, but they are only effective when someone is psychologically and emotionally ready to initiate change and is at the action stage of the change cycle. And if they're not, if they're in pre-contemplation or contemplation or even preparation, they're not ready yet. And none of these kind of hacks are going to work, right? I mean, have you tried this where you've, (laughs) I have, put your clothes out the night before so you can go wake up and exercise. Like that's going to do nothing for me if I'm not at that stage where I'm ready to do it. I mean, for the love of the Lord, I have a Peloton literally two feet from my (laughs) sock drawer and I don't use it. So the friction couldn't be lower, you know, The friction in terms of like, it doesn't take any effort for me to get on that bike. Uh, I don't have to leave my house. I I literally walk two feet and yet I still don't use it. So these methods are not effective if you're not psychologically ready because action-centric models are just not sophisticated enough to address our biggest roadblock to change. And this is our ambivalence about the change, right? That feeling of like, we kind of want it, but we kind of don't. These action-centric models just don't address that real problem and that resistance to change. All right. So in contrast to the action-centric approach, we have a more mindset-centric approach. And both Prochaska and DiClemente's trans-theoretical model of change, the one that we're describing here in this episode, and Keegan and Leahy's immunity to change model, which I described in the previous episodes, episode three, Both of those are models that represent a mindset-centric approach. They're both models that address the deeper internal barriers to change, and they view change as a progression through stages of cognitive, emotional, and behavioral development of all three, not just behavior modification, but really truly an evolution of your thinking and your emotional experience and how that then informs your behavior. These are the important similarities, I think, between these two approaches and why they are not the same as the resolution model of change. So in general, and this is my personal opinion, I find that the trans-theoretical model provides a more generalized 30,000-foot view of the overarching structure of the entire change process. And the immunity to change framework offers a deeper, more targeted methodology to excavate and overturn the psychological barriers that prevent individuals from making the changes they need and desire. I trained with Kagan and Leahy, so I largely use the immunity to change framework, but I find the trans-theoretical model just as an overarching structure to be enormously helpful. And I think it really was like a massive breakthrough in our field. Okay, so this is a lot of theoretical and technical shop talk, but here's why this geeky in the weed stuff is actually so relevant to you and your struggles to make the changes you want most. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, the way you think change happens matters tremendously. So whether you think personal transformation occurs by 
engaging in a developmental process of evolution from lower to higher stages of self-awareness and readiness to move forward? Or you think it happens by the power of your personality with grit and determination or by the transforming pressure of external forces like pain, discomfort, and hitting a rock bottom? Or by surrendering to the will of a God of your understanding, like in the AA structure? Or by waiting for someone or something to liberate you or give you a flash of life-altering insight or some combination of all of the above? It is deeply important because it entirely, entirely shapes the way you approach your own personal growth and entirely shapes the way you attempt to facilitate other people's personal growth. It truly makes all the difference. We spend so much time thinking about the what of change that we forget to think about the how of change. And not knowing how to change is like sitting in the cockpit of a plane, knowing precisely where you want to go, but having no idea how to actually fly the plane right? (laughs) No amount of shouting, let's go, you can do hard things, visualize the destination, and no amount of criticism and self-flagellation. What's wrong with you? You're such a loser. You've been sitting on the tarmac and not going anywhere. You should have figured this out by now. None of that is going to help either. And you know that. So the question is, when it comes to making positive changes, do you just pick a destination and hope for the best? And by the way, most of us do. Or do you instead work on becoming a more skillful pilot of the plane that will get you where you want to go and become more skillful at working with your magnificent and protective mind? You may not have thought much about how you conceptualize the change process until now. (laughs) Probably not. But rest assured, you already subscribe to a mental model of change. It may be a very simple two-step change model. Stage one, want change. Stage two, do change. I think, you know, (laughs) that's kind of our default mode. But whatever it is, it's what you're currently using right now to alter your behavior. And my question to you is this, how is it working? Really? And if your answer is not well, the problem isn't you. The problem is your approach. And I, and I really, really want you to internalize this. No one teaches us how to change. We learn all sorts of things. We go to all this schooling and no one actually teaches us how we actually engage in change. We learn so much. We, we learn how to drive a car and yet we don't learn how to drive our behavioral change. So the problem really is not you and your character and your genes and your lack of willpower and your lack of motivation and your laziness and your lack of confidence or whatever it is, right? The real problem is your approach, that your approach is just not effective. So how about this? If you're ready to start doing change differently, and I don't mean taking action on the change, but you want a bigger perspective on what's actually happening, a more accurate understanding of what your roadblocks are and what your resistance is all about, email me at hello at thechangelabpodcast.com and apply to get coached on the podcast. We can change your name if that would make you more comfortable for privacy. No one will see what you look like. They'll just hear your voice. So apply to work with me on the podcast. It'll be so helpful for you for sure. And also for everyone, we learn by observing 
And you will learn so much by watching or listening to other people get coached and obviously getting coached yourself. So I know there are those of you out there that are feeling that inner tug. So take that brave action and send me an email and we'll get to work breaking through your BS. I I love coaching. (laughs) I love coaching y'all. It'll be really fun. And you might even, you know, have a breakthrough. So it's pretty exciting. So email me and don't worry. I did not forget your weekly lab work. This week, I encourage you to write out on paper or on the screen how you think change happens. You know, what is your working mental model of change? It's not an easy exercise to do alone. So I really do suggest that you connect with a friend, you know, go out for dinner with a friend, call someone who's interested in personal growth and development and sit down and actually ask each other, like, how does change happen? Have you ever thought about that? And discuss it together and kind of, you know, figure out what it is that you actually believe and how you've been going about it. You may realize, right, that your mental model is cobbled together with pipe cleaners and tape, right? And and is in dire need of an update. So get curious and have fun with it. And I will see y'all next Monday. For more dirt on today's topic, make sure to visit the episode show notes at drsashahines.com. Or if you have any specific questions, you can shoot me an email at hello at thechangelabpodcast.com or find me on Instagram at drsashahines. If you're enjoying The Change Lab, there are three things you can do about it. Subscribe and leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Share the show with a friend or five. Or head over to drsashahines.com to check out the ways you can work with me and dive deeper into this work. And if you're feeling wild, maybe do all three. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next Monday.